Corinthians chapter 7. This particular chapter is the second longest of all the chapters in Paul's writings. There's approximately 100 chapters in all of Paul's epistles. This particular chapter has 40 verses. Uh, it's, only a, it's tied by chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, and then 1 Corinthians 15 is just a few verses longer. So it's one of the longest chapters in, the Paul, in Paul's writings. Not in the Bible or in the New Testament, because there's many gospel chapters that are longer. But before we make too much of that, we have to remember that chapter breaks and verse breaks are not inspired. They were created much later. In fact, I looked it up, and I've mentioned this a few times, but I wanted to make sure I had my facts right. The first English version of the Bible that had the verses in it was the Geneva Bible, which is the precursor to the King James Version. The Geneva Bible was the one that the pilgrims brought to the United States because they were not about to travel with the King James. Good reason. But that was the first that actually had verse references. So here we are all these years later, we just think that's normal and natural and it's inspired. Well, it's not. However, if you take a look at chapter 7, you see a topic, a long topic, where Paul is addressing various things, primarily in chapter 7, the issue of marriage. Now before we get into this, I need to address a few myths and a few misunderstandings about chapter 7 because if you just read chapter 7 with relation to marriage it's very easy as many will say to believe that Paul hated marriage and hated women in particular. Secondly that Paul taught that the unmarried serve God better than the married. If you do a surface reading of this it's how it comes across. Obviously if that's all you're reading, you're not reading the whole New Testament. Um, and you have to also remember, whenever you study this passage, Paul is addressing a specific issue within the confines of marriage. He's not talking about the purpose of marriage in total. He does that in Ephesians. But here, he's addressing something very specific. There are also a very large group of scholars like to, like to throw out the entire chapter because by Paul's admission, this is his opinion and it's not necessarily inspired. You want to go, what? Wait, that's not, well, no, that couldn't happen. Well, if you have your Bible open, Turn to chapter 7 and look at verse 6. Now verse 6 is in your handout, but the Bible will be looking at other verses as well. In verse 6 he says, I say this as a concession, not as a command. In other words, it's his opinion. Verse 12, he writes, To the rest I say, parentheses, I, not the Lord. It's Paul's opinion. Verse 25, Concerning the, the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give you my judgment. Sounds like it's an opinion. And in verse 40, he says, yet in my judgment. And then he makes a comment and then ends with, I think I have the Spirit of God. So, if that's all you're reading, and you're not looking at the totality of Scripture, it may come across that Paul is just saying, eh, that's what I think, but you can do what you want not what he's doing. It's not his intent. In fact, when he's contrasting for the rest I say and not the Lord, it, it ignores the fact that just two verses earlier he had referred to the commands of Jesus. So he's saying, this was Jesus, this is me. See how they're the same thing? But I need to make sure you understand that what I'm saying right here was not the words of Jesus, because before I was quoting him, and now I'm not. It just things of that nature. And then lastly, if you don't have a true belief in the inspiration of Scripture, it's very easy to start picking and choosing which verses you want to read and which verses you want to reject. 
It's either the Word of God or it's not. There's no in-between. None. And whoever's out there trying to say, well, you know, this, you can throw this chapter out because Paul was just kind of saying, he was just riffing. You know, just kind of, ah, well, that's what I think, you know. You can do what you want. Very frustrating when I come across that. And more background on the issue of marriage. In the Roman era, there was no true um, civil law related to marriage. Now, we contrast that with the, our United States. To be married is a, you have to get the marriage, what? License. Marriage license. It has to be approved by the government. It's part of the law in order then to qualify for the various tax breaks, etc., etc., related to our society. Now, we all know there's been a breakdown in marriage, and there's an awful lot that are not getting married, and yet they would like to claim they have the same rights as married people, but they don't necessarily do. And then you had, of course, the whole issue of gay marriage. That's a completely different topic we can talk about some other day. <clears throat> but in Roman world, there were four ways you could get married. Four. Now, you might say, what do you, what do you mean? I mean, is one way you stand on one foot like a flamingo and, you know, flap your arms like a chicken and that makes you married? Is that what you mean? No, no, no. There are four different types of marriage in Roman society. Now remember, at least half of Roman's, Roman society was slaves. They weren't even Roman citizens. So you had the slaves. And because they were owned by an owner, they had no rights. In fact, to some owners, they weren't, the slaves weren't even human. But if a man and a woman wanted to be married, they had to get permission from the owner for that to happen. And the owner would grant something called, oh, let me write the Latin down here, contubernium. Contubernium. And that means a tent marriage, which means they are basically allowed to live under the same tent. did not change the rights and the ownership of the owner. If he wanted, he could sell off the husband. And there's nothing the, neither he nor the wife could do about it. So marriages could be busted up very easily. So when Paul is writing to the church, you have to remember a lot of members in the church were slaves. So when he's talking about marriage, he's talking to these people and what, if you look at the totality of Paul's writings on marriage, the core essence of everything he tries to talk about is the sanctity of that relationship before God. Over and over and over again, you get that feeling. And if you add that to everything Jesus said about marriage, which was considerable, including Matthew chapter 19, um, you have this approach to those who felt they weren't worthy, they had no rights, and yet before God they did. So it didn't matter whether they were free or slave. The second type, this was, the word is U.S. U.S. Uses. This is when two people were not slaves, lived together for a year. At the end of that year, they could be considered married. Now, what would we call that in our common parlance? What would we call that? Common law. Okay, so this is the common law marriage. So, in the church, there were probably those who were married under common law. Third, this is called 
Coimcio, there's an I there, Coimcio in Manum. Coimcio in Manum. This is the arranged marriage. Now, we all know the stories of arranged marriages and we understand the concept, but you have pretty much two families come together and say, hey, let's stick our kids together because it's to our benefit. Not for the benefit of the kids, who cares about them? But for us, it means this union, either for politics or for <coughs> finances. But there's even a story of, um, uh, well, it's not necessarily an arranged marriage, but you have Emperor Cicero. He divorced, this later in his life, he divorced his wife, married a rich woman to pay off his own debts. That's convenient, <laughs> but that's kind of how Roman society was. The last is called con, so it's C-O-N-F-A-R-R-E-A-T-I-O, conferatio. This is the high calling uh, marriage, for lack of a better comparison, it would be like what we see as marriage. It's not arranged, it's not um, you know, common law, it's not tent marriage stuff. It's the two people coming together officially, either out of love or whatever, they are, they are marrying. <clears throat> they, one guy called it, this is the classy marriage. The others weren't quite so classy. So in further rabbit trail research, which I am want to do, um, during some of this digging around, I discovered that the current marriage ceremony that we use in the church today is not based on the Hebrew Old Testament marriage ceremony. I hope you realize that, because that lasted seven days. And we don't have seven days, seven day marriages. We have an afternoon or an evening, right? Well, that comes from Rome. The Roman Catholic Church picked up the Roman ceremony and just made it, just continued it. And if you think about it, when the Reformation came along, they didn't change it. They may have removed the mass, but there's still communion often done. So you had actually families coming together. They would pick out a matron of honor, not necessarily a maid of honor. Uh, and there would be a best man type of person. The couple would join hands and they would recite vows and prayers were offered to Jupiter and Juno, not to Jesus, but to the Roman gods. There were flowers, there was a bridal wreath, which is the forerunner of the bridal bouquet, and the bride wore a veil. And on top of that, they exchanged rings. And ever since Roman times, it has always been on the left hand, fourth finger. Now, that tradition, however, is the idea of the left hand isn't universal in the world. My understanding is that Spain, Venezuela, Peru, Denmark, Norway, and India use the right hand. Germany. Is that correct? You've heard that? Yeah. yeah. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I don't know why. So why the fourth finger? Well, back then they had these genius medical doctors who were who would root around inside dead bodies and uh, you know do the dissection and figure it out. They found a vein that went from the fourth finger to the heart. Went, ah, symbolic. Now, since that time we also know there's a lot of other veins that go to the heart from all the various other fingers, but that was what, that's where it started. So, uh, again, one more rabbit trail. <laughs> this one's kind of fun, and it's something you probably have seen before I never had. So I want you, you need to get your hands ready, bring them up like this, like you're about ready to clap, and put your palms together with your fingers up. Now, the thumbs represent your parents. Your index figure, fingers represent your siblings. The middle finger represents yourself. The fourth finger represents your spouse. 
and the pinky finger represents your children. So it's the totality of your relationships, your familial relationships. Alright? And you know, you can do this. It's all very loose. Now take the middle finger and bring it down so the knuckles touch in the middle. You have to have your whole leg, hold your hands like this, because you're not intended to be always together with your parents. You can separate. Go, go ahead and clap, clap your thumbs. You can also, you're never supposed to, not, you're supposed to separate from your siblings and your children, but try to remove yourself from your spouse. <laughs> you can't. Your fingers won't let you. It's impossible. Your, your hands won't do it. So you have this visual representation. Isn't that fun? I've never seen that before. Anybody have seen that before? I mean, I just went, oh, that's so cool. <laughs> I mean, what a teaching moment. You know, go to little, you know, fourth and fifth graders now. See, this is why mommy and daddy are together, because they can't pull them apart. So anyway, it must have been God ordained because that's how he made our hands. <clears throat> this whole idea of marriage obviously with so much written in the New Testament about it. Now granted, Jesus spoke more about money than he did about marriage. But money and marital relationships are the two things that seem to be central and also are the flashpoints for disagreement, dysfunction, and destruction in relationships. Isn't it interesting that the Bible speaks an awful lot about it. If anyone says, oh, the Bible's just all full of, you know, rules and regulations and, and nothing practical, they haven't read chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. So we need to turn there. We're at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The background's done. Verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Oh. Obviously, someone had sent Paul questions. The first six chapters of 1 Corinthians, he's addressing the problem of disunity. He also addresses some practical issues in, uh, in uh, immorality and in lawsuits um, within the church and all the, these, these challenges were happening. But we believe because he not this isn't the first time for the rest of the chapter where he says, now concerning the matters which you wrote about, there obviously were questions posed. We have no idea what the questions were. All we have are his answers. There are those who believe that the letters that letters or questions that arrived to Paul were brought to him by Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaeus because those three are mentioned in 1 Corinthians 16 as Paul being thankful for them coming. Obviously from Corinth. So he wrote this letter, sent it back with them probably, if not them, with someone else. And the first thing that he writes about, he says, concerning the matters about which you wrote, the King James Version writes, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Now that isn't the ESV version. The ESV as it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. The old NIV wrote it's good for a man not to marry. The new Christian Standard Bible, the CSV, translates it as it's good for a man not to use a woman for sex. And you have the ESV, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. In other words, it's been translated differently depending on which translation you're looking at. Does it all mean the same thing? Yeah, kind of, sort of, maybe, yes. Um, it's a euphemism. The literal Greek reads, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. The King James was right. One of the few times we can say the King James translated something literally. The problem is the word touch. So John MacArthur was preaching about this. He goes, yep, I remember in junior high, we had a hayride 
And this rather aggressive matronly woman who was coordinating it said, we have one wagon for the guys and one wagon for the girls. And we all went, what's the point? <laughs> A hayride is so we can sit with our girls and have fun. And, and she quoted 1 Corinthians 7, 1. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. He goes, here I am all these years later and I've never forgotten that bad exegesis. <laughs> because if that were literal, Adam and Eve would have been the only humans ever on planet Earth. It's just, no. That isn't what it means. That isn't the wording. Scholars have dug into ancient Greek literature and they have found this phrase nine other times in non-biblical literature. And in every case, it's then corroborated with other uses of the same word touch. And in every time, they're referring to sexual relations. Every time. It's a euphemism. It's like saying we're going to the bathroom. Well, no, we're not. We're not going to take a bath. We just don't want to say what we're doing. Or the euphemism uh, that they slept together. No, they didn't. They might have at some point, but that was not the point. It's a euphemism for sexual relations. What makes this interesting is that Paul is not writing his own words. If you'll notice in your ESV, it's in quotes. He's quoting a slogan that is in the Corinthian city, in the church. Just like in chapter 6, verse 12, he quotes the slogan, all things are lawful for me. And he spends the next 10, 15 verses correcting that slogan, saying, well, yes, but that's not what it means. So here he is quoting a slogan that it's, good for a man not to have sexual relations. And he says, no, I need to correct this thing. And I'll explain where this comes from in a minute. But what makes this even more difficult to translate is that the word for woman there is the Greek word G-Y-N-E, gyne, where we get our word gynecologist. That word is also translated as wife in the rest of the chapter. It's the same word. So it's either woman or wife. Which is it? You have to look at it in its context. So if you wanted to take it literally, you could say it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a wife. That would just further confuse the issue, except for the fact that is the issue that Paul is actually addressing here. He is addressing the idea of a, the use of celibacy as either a weapon or a spiritual, um, not power, but that something is more spiritual for lack of sexual relations. So we have this interesting thing starting right with the very first verse, which is where people read that and go, oh yeah, Paul hates marriage, Paul hates women. That isn't what he's doing. He's quoting someone else. If he had said, now concerning the matter which you wrote, which I saw on the internet in a meme, then we would have gone, oh, yeah, it's not him. He just saw it on Facebook. But this is what it essentially is, is a phrase that was going around and being used as a rule in the church. Now, over the centuries, this this phrase, this wording, even the discussion we're having here about whether celibacy is better than marriage or marriage is better than celibacy has been an ongoing issue in the church for 2,000 years. Origen, who was a early church father, he died in 254 AD, so he was third century. When he was 17 years old, his father was beheaded for his Christian faith. So this was a family that really believed in Christ. He became, for lack of a better word, because they didn't have them really at the time, became a monk. 
but he became an ascetic, which meant he deprived himself of things. He slept on the floor. He ate no meat. He drank no wine. He fasted twice a week. He owned no shoes. And, most famously, he castrated himself so that he could be pure before God. He was taking the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, verse 12, where it says, There are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And he went, I can receive that. And so he mutilated himself for Jesus. Okay, good for you, Origen. <laughs> you are not my role model. Um, but that's what he did. Well, let's hop a few years later and you have Thomas Aquinas. We had, in the Middle Ages, monasticism sprung up. Both the male monk and the female nun in the Catholic Church as a way to get men and women separated from the world. And it, it, my understanding, and I don't know, this, I didn't look it up because I have gone through too many rabbit trails already, um, that some nuns actually wear a wedding ring. Mm -hmm. True. That's true, okay. And it's their indication that they're married to Christ. I don't know if monks do it, but there is that symbolic element. Yeah. The evangelical sisters that are married, the uh -huh. Lutheran, um, that do um, Canaan in the desert, they, they wear. Oh, they do. Okay. So what you have, if, if you're not familiar with Canaan, Canaan in the desert, up here. What, Shea and 40th Street. What's, where is it located? 40th Street. 40th Street and Shea. Yeah. Uh, it's the Evangelical Sisterhood of Mary, and they're Lutheran nuns. Okay, they're not Catholic; they're Lutheran nuns, but they have devoted their lives to Christ. Okay. Well, Thomas Aquinas said, "Sexuality is always evil. Always evil, because there is in it an excess of pleasure." so that in the act it is impossible to contemplate God. This is Thomas Aquinas. So in other words, if you have sex at all, sorry, you can't be a good believer. But contrast that with John Calvin, who was watching, and obviously as a rather firebrand reformer, he wrote this about the priests. Because in the Catholic Church, even today, a priest is not allowed to marry. It's by church law. They're not allowed to. And of course, there's all sorts of hullabaloo because of all the predatory acts and all the horrible things that are now have been called come, come up. You know, I, I just it's one of the things where you're really sad about it, and it's horrible, but it's also a small percentage. But every priest is splashed by it. So there is a doubt of anyone wearing a collar. And, you know, some of these men are very devout. Catholic or not, they're devout men. But at the same time, there's also the predators among them. Well, this is what Calvin wrote. He said, the ministers of the church is being prohibited from lawful marriage. The consequence of this tyranny was that the church was robbed of many good and faithful ministers. For pious and prudent men would not ensnare themselves in this way. At length, after a long course of time, lusts which had been previously kept under gave forth their abominable odor. It was reckoned a small matter for those in whom it would have been a capital crime to have a wife to maintain with impunity concubines, that is, prostitutes. No house was safe from the impurity of the priests. Even that was reckoned a small matter for there has sprung up monstrous enormities which it is better to bury in eternal oblivion than to make mention of them by way of example. By the way, this is from his commentary on 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So he took an opportunity to say, you know, this idea that the priest can't marry, that probably wasn't a good idea because some of them can't handle it. And the corruption is it's so obvious 
were looking at it. And so even in his day, what's that, 500 years ago? They were having this problem. If you remember, Luther was a monk. He was a priest. Reformation came, and what did he do? He married Katie. It's what he felt he should do. It was the right thing. So you go into all of this and you, you kind of say, well, um, let me get my get back to my correct notes. Where am I? Page one. Oh, here it is. It says here, verse two, because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. It's the ESV. The King James says her benevolence. The NIV says her marital duty. And likewise, the wife to her husband. Why? Because in theory, it's more spiritual to be celibate. That's where the comment was being made, is that the idea, remember what was prevalent, the flesh is evil, the spirit is good. What happens to one doesn't happen to the other, but you can keep this pure if you don't eat, drink, have sex, do any of this immoral stuff. And so they were saying, you know what? It's good for a man not to have sexual relations because that is a higher spiritual plane than for all you weak people who are in a marriage relationship and have to have, and have, to have sexual relations. And Paul's going, what are you doing? Uh, you can almost see him before he wrote, just sort of going, stomping around, going, oh, these people, they are such babes. They, why are they letting the world tell them what's spiritual and what isn't? Let me address this right now. Because of the temptation of immorality? Yeah. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. But it isn't because marriage is less or celibacy is more. It's you can't use one as a hammer against the other. You know, we are in a sex-saturated a sex society. There is no question. It's been that way for a long time. We've all grown up in it. Even it seems to escalate every day. So it was very um, appropriate for lack of a better word, yesterday, or sorry, today is Sunday, so Friday, was a big announcement in the general market and book publishing of a new contract coming out for a book that sold for a $500,000 advance. What? That's a lot of money for a first-time nonfiction author who is a writer for Bustle, the book is called Anything But Monogamy. This is the description. Slated for 2021, the book is an investigation of non-monogamous sexual practices among women, pegged to statistics showing that these practices are on the rise. The book's pitch letter claimed it is a, quote, deep personal account of one journalist's not-so-conventional sexual journey that breaks down the barriers surrounding non-monogamy and pushes this hush-hush topic out from behind closed doors. In other words, she's writing about the fact that she's having sex with anyone who can move and have a pulse. And she writes her journey of this and is getting paid a half a million dollars. You turn around and you have John Piper write a book on the glory of marriage and no one talks about it. You know, a few people who know John Piper by it. You have our former pastor, Tim Savage, write a book, which is an amazing book about marriage. And But if they'd write, written about how it's okay to shack up with everybody that breathes, they would have made millions of dollars and we would not have a church. Anyway, 
It's frustrating, obviously. Both singleness or celibacy and marriage are high callings of God. Never limit your reading on a topic, on either of these topics, to these verses. You have to read all the others. The whole of Scripture, including Jesus' many statements, talk about the sanctity and the glory of marriage. We have married people in the New Testament. Peter had a mother-in-law. It's talked about many times. They stayed in his mother-in-law's house. His wife is never mentioned, but the mother-in-law is. I don't know where the dynamic goes with that, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> you have James, the brother of Jesus, was married. You have Aquila and Priscilla are held up as these bastions of the faith. At the same time, you have singles. You have John the Baptist, not married. You have Jesus, contrary to the book, The Da Vinci Code. <laughs> Jesus was not married. So comes the question, was, was Paul married? Now we know he talks about being single in this, in this chapter, but was he ever married? For this reason, he was a rabbi. And in the Jewish culture, if you were not married, you were not fulfilling the call of God, which says to uh, be fruitful and multiply. Or as one guy, one guy wrote says, if a man is not married, he has slain his prosperity. It says in Acts 26 that Paul voted with the Sanhedrin. And one of the requirements to be a Sanhedrin was to be married and have children. So, that blows all sorts of things because there's no record one way or the other, other than the fact that Paul claims he's single. But anytime he writes about marriage, he never mentions the fact that he was married. So we don't know. Uh, one commentator came out flat out and says, well, obviously he was. No, it's not obvious he was. And then you have other writers saying, well, obviously he never was. Well, no, it's not obvious he never was either. We just don't know. It's possible he was and she died. She passed away. Very possible. I mean, people didn't live very long back then. And diseases were rampant. And so it may be it was a difficult topic. And so he just didn't write about it. You know, it wasn't pertinent. His thing was to talk about the glory of Jesus Christ. It just wasn't pertinent. Another theory that rolls out there is that when he had his Damascus Road experience, she was ticked and left him. Wow. Yeah, that's an interesting theory. Um, because well, now, you know, she might have been Jewish and thought this was just weird and what are you doing? Hmm, maybe not. Sounds like gossip. Hmm? Sounds like gossip. Sounds like gossip, exactly. Or, and one other theory, in fact, I don't even find this theory mentioned very often. It could have been his sheer brilliance was such that the Jewish rulers, teachers, and leaders welcomed him in despite his lack of, of having a wife. You know, sometimes you kind of go, eh, we'll break the rule here, we'll bend it, because, man, this guy is amazing. And look at his fervor to eliminate the Christians. Let's let him do it. Possible. We don't know. You know, I think the line at Paul's desk in heaven is going to be really long because we all have lots of questions. And if he answered the question for the person who's 7,500 people ahead of you, you are still going to ask your question because you, you can't hear the answer. Because there's things like this go, hey, Paul, were you married? I don't know. I would, I'm confused. Tell me the story. In our, you know, starting moving through history, I just mentioned Martin Luther being married. You also have Charles and Susanna Spurgeon. I uh, gave a book to Lisa about Susanna Spurgeon this last Christmas, and it's this incredible discussion of this woman that nobody ever talks about. They always talk about Charles Spurgeon, but not the wife. And of course, Billy and Ruth Graham. You know, you want to say, oh, so the fact that they were married, is that a negative? Of course not. And on the other side, 
The fact that John Stott was never married is not a negative, nor is it necessarily a positive. It's just is. John Stott was an amazing teacher, an amazing writer, never married. But you know, if you read his writings, it wasn't until it was his obituary that I discovered he was never married. I never knew that. I'd always assumed that he was a, you know, a priest of the Church of England, and so, yeah, of course he was married. Never dawned on me that he wasn't, because it never came up. It wasn't an issue. So, we have these kinds of things. You also have even C.S. Lewis didn't get married until he was 58 years old. He married Joy Davidman, you know, the whole story of that. Thanks so all those years when he's writing Mere Christianity and all those other works, it was never brought up. It wasn't an issue. So we come back to this idea of the married, the husband and the wife having mutual submission to each other in the conjugal rights. Verse 4. This is the key verse of the whole, cha- whole passage. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And every husband stops in their Bible, underlines that, and went, see? And fail to read the rest of the verse. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. You realize how radical this was? In this day and age, women had no rights. In secular society, even in the Jewish society, you could just say, honey, pack your bags. And the divorce was complete. Um, Let's see if I find it here. Where is it? My notes. I want to get the statistics correct. It was um, Jerome. Jerome said he met a man who was on his 21st wife. Really? The historian Juvenal, was the Roman historian, talked about a woman who had eight husbands in five years. I mean, she left Joan Collins in the dust. Um, you know, this is... This was the society they were in. The wife doesn't have authority of her own body. The husband does. The husband doesn't have authority of his own body. The wife does. But this is what just blew my mind. Only one of the many commentators I read and the sermons that I listened to, only one of them mentioned 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, which says... Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. He had just written that. And here we are, four verses later, and he says, the wife doesn't have authority over over her body, nor the husband over his. Guess what? Neither of you own your own body. In Christ, Christ does. This is where it starts. It starts with taking who you are, everything who you are, your entire body, and it's for His glory, not your own. And then when you step back into the marital relationship and you go, oh, I'm not here for me. I'm here for you. You're not there for you. You're there for me. Now, granted, men and women are different. If Lois, Deb, Sally, and Rose go out to lunch, they call each other Lois, Deb, Sally, and Rose. But if George, Bill, Charlie, and Tim go out, they call each other Fat Boy, Godzilla, Peanut Head, and Razor. (laughs) With money, a man will pay $2 for a $1 item that he needs. A woman will pay $1 for a $2 item she doesn't need, but it's on sale. A woman always has the last word in an argument. Anything he says after that is the beginning of a new argument. A woman marries a man expecting he will change, but he doesn't. A man marries a woman expecting she won't change, but she does. 
When women are depressed, they either, go, they either eat or they go shopping. When men are depressed, they invade another country. <laughs> Any married man should forget his mistakes because it's no use for two people to remember the same thing. have to think about that one for a second. <laughs> uh, a woman knows all about her children, knows about dentist appointments, romances, best friends, favorite foods, secret fears, hopes, and dreams. A man is vaguely aware that there's some short people living in the house. <laughs> anyway, there are differences, and they are differences to be gloried in and to be glorified. Genesis 2, Adam was created, God said it's not good for man to be alone, and created a helper. Not meaning a subservient, but someone who would complement and make him full. You know, I've said it many times in many public forums, but I would not be where I am in my business, in my work, and in my life if it weren't for my wife, Lisa. She comes under and behind the unsung hero in the relationship. I'm not, it's not embarrassing to say that, but it's true. Those who are blessed with that, marriage is a gift. But Paul is also very clear that singleness is a gift as well. It may be through a tragedy. It may be through circumstance. But it still is a gift. It's where God has placed a person. And for people to say, well, you need to get married, or you're not really spiritual, or you're missing out, that's an insult to God. It's an insult to that person. The church has not been very good about this, partly because you know, 90% of the relationships out there are married people in the church. And so it's tough for the single to find a place, especially the older single. It's just tough. Well, he does cut back to the other issues of don't deprive one another except by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer. One pastor said in 20 years of marital counseling, neither, never has any couple complained about the lack of intimacy because of spiritual reasons. No one ever does that. Well, Paul is saying it's like fasting. If you want to fast and deprive yourself of food, do it for a purpose. If it is to deprive relations, sexual relations, it should be for a purpose, not because celibacy is better. And that's what he's addressing. There were those in these various relationships who were saying, oh honey, it's not that I don't have, that I have a headache, it's because I'm being spiritual right now. No, that isn't, that's not mutual. There's nothing mutual about that. It was being used incorrectly as a weapon or as a way of being superior. A Jewish document called the Testament of Levi, which was written to the priests right around the first century BC. So Paul would have been very aware of it. It said, beware of the spirit of fornication and for this shall continue and shall by thy seed pollute the holy place. Therefore, take thyself a wife without blemish or pollution while you are yet young. In other words, sexual relations could be a problem, so marry young. And so Paul would be aware of that theory. And he's saying it isn't that cut and dried. And he writes here, verse 6, it's a concession, not a command. I say this, I wish that you were all as I, that I am. Which means he's single, because he says that later in verse 8. But each has his own gift from God. One of one kind? and one of another. Then he touches on singleness in the last two verses, but then he expands on it more later in the chapter, so I'm gonna fold that into the later part of, the, of our discussion, just to bring it all together. One fellow wrote it this way, and I'll use this as closing. He said, 
Uh, this is Bob Deffenbaugh. He said, I wish I could have seen the looks on the faces of the Corinthian ascetics when they heard Paul's response to what they had written. The written of, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. These folks must be so puffed up with pride at their self-control and victory over fleshly desires. While they differ with Paul in many matters, surely they think Paul would applaud them for maintaining that sex is dirty and should be avoided, even in marriage. They do not want Paul's advice or instruction, only his endorsement. But what they receive is entirely different. Paul agrees that abstaining from sex can be beneficial, but only in the most restricted application. Instead of applauding them for abstaining, From sex in marriage, Paul instructs them to engage in sex with their spouses as a duty. This must not be done with gritted teeth, and the goal of each mate should be because the goal of each mate should be satisfied the other. The Corinthian ascetics think that spirituality is antithetical to the enjoyment of sex within marriage. Paul wants his readers, which includes us, to understand that spirituality encompasses every aspect of one's life including sexuality. If you're married, have you ever thought of whether your sex life is spirit-filled or not? You should. Paul is teaching husbands and wives that servanthood is the fundamental agreement to satisfying intimacy in a marriage. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this practical. The practicality of the scriptures is just quite extraordinary. And the application is still appropriate 2,000 years later. To me, this just simply affirms, Lord, that you have inspired the Word of God, the Scriptures that we have. This message came from you to a particular situation, and yet it does have application widely and broadly. And for that, we are so thankful. As we move into our time of worship, let's lift our eyes and hearts in praise and honor to you who do, you do care about every detail in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.